0: Well, I ask that you turn in your Bibles on your phone, just don't go to Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. Turn and turn to the book of First John. First John chapter two, verses seven to seventeen. Would you stand with me as we pray and we read from God's Word? This is what God says to us today. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard at the same time. It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because this darkness has blinded his eyes. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title for today is Fellowship with God, Overcoming the World. John, in our text for today, and we're really going to deal with 12 to 17, writes to children, fathers, and young men. After reminding them that he is proclaiming to them what he has seen, heard, and touched, the word of life, who is Jesus, John says Jesus is the only basis for a fellowship with each other and with God, and that is true. Jesus is the only basis for fellowship with each other and for God. He then tells them why he is writing to them. He tells them several times, I am writing to you for this express purpose. He says in John 1, 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy is complete, if you remember, when we are walking in the light and the truth abides us. When we wander from the light, we need only to confess our sins, and God, who is faithful and just, will restore us so that we can once again walk in the light. He then says that he is writing to them so they may not sin. Look at what it says in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is one who stands in the place of another. One who intercedes on the behalf of another. Jesus stands before the throne of God interceding for us. He then goes on to say in, two, in, in chapter 2, verse 7, as we learned last week, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. If you Remember, the old new commandment is that of love, to love one another. In our text for today, John tells them once more, again, the purpose for his letter. Listen to what he says. I am writing to you, little children, Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. John is stating over and over again the purpose for his writing. He wants his audience to know that he's not just writing for the sake of writing. There's a purpose to what he is doing. They are to know that Jesus is real. That their sins are forgiven. That they can walk into light and that they can know that they know him. That they can love their fellow brother and not be a source of stumbling to themselves or to others. John now for the fourth time states why he is writing. In our text, we'll see he goes on six more times to say, I am writing to you, why he is writing. And John for the second time addresses them as little children. If you remember, it's a term of endearment. And it's a term that is applied to all the people in the church. When he says little children, he's talking to everybody in the church. Look again at what it says in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Little children, technion, a person of any age of whom there is a special relationship of endearment and association. But he says the reason that he's writing to them is because their sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Are forgiven. Aphiomi means to leave, dismiss, or Forgive. Last week, when we talked about loving your brother or sister, we saw that three of the most powerful words in the world that you could ever hear are, I love you. God says to us, I love you. Along with the words, I love you. And we understand that there are powerful negative words can affect you, I hate you, could scar you your entire life. God doesn't give us those. God gives us positive. Along with I love you, there are also three very powerful words. I forgive you. Wow. God. Imagine just God holding your face looking you square in the eyes, says, I love you, I forgive you. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing more freeing than to hear that I love you and I forgive you. The words, the word forgive is in the perfect tense. And it really matters. The words of Scripture, as we learned in Sunday school today, they actually really matter. This is what it means to be in the perfect tense. The verb tense used by the writer to describe a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or result that exists in the present. I was forgiven in eternity past, and I'm still forgiven today. And therefore, Christ forgives all my sins, past, present, and future, because God is in the past, and He's already in the future. The emphasis of the perfect is not the past action so much as it is As is such, but the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. The action of Jesus Christ on the cross so many years ago is applied to you and I today. It's never, ever, 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 ever lost its power. And that's why Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love you. I forgive you. Forgiveness of sins applies to all Christians. Forgiveness of sins is what unites all believers in Christ Jesus. That is the fundamental basis of what we have in common is the forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus. That's why John says, because, John says, he, I write these things to you because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Such a small little phrase that we might just pass over. But it's so huge. For His name's sake. Did God forgive you for your sake? No. For His own sake. For his own sake. God's name refers to his character. It speaks of the essence of who he is. When we do sin, we must remember what God says about himself. That he is merciful. That he is gracious. He is slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Repentance and confession are not the basis of salvation. They're not the basis of salvation. They are a means to salvation. The basis of salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. That is the basis of our salvation. The scripture is clear that there is no other name given amongst men by which you must be saved. There is no other name that can forgive you of your sins other than that of Jesus Christ. As the psalmist says in Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us, and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah forty-three, twenty-five, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Listen to what David Allen says. We are forgiven today because of the great sacrificial gift Jesus made on our behalf. Our love, our service, and our devotion to Jesus should be in light of the great sacrifice He has made for us in bringing us forgiveness of the sins for His name's sake. Do you know that your sins are forgiven, loved ones? If so, how do you know that? And if not, why? 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 John now addresses fathers, young men and children. He uses these addresses not in the terms of their physical age, but rather of their spiritual maturity. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. People who are mature in the faith. You've met these kind of believers, I'm I'm sure, who are mature in the faith and have come to know God the Father through Jesus Christ. They know who God is, and their minds are arrested with the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. They have a lifetime of trusting God, and a lifetime of God coming through time and time again. As Miss Pat will say, what? He will what, church? Do it again, because he does not change. He cannot deny himself. The result is a growing knowledge of God and a perseverance of faith. And, and I, when I wrote this sermon this week, and, 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 and it, it did remind me of Polycarp. So, man, I didn't get this from R.C. Sproul. It was in our book this week that we were looking. But a Polycarp was a faithful man, the Bishop of Smyrna, who served God. And, well, the world system didn't like that. And so what do we do? Well, let's just get rid of him. Let's just kill him. And so they tied him to the stake. They, they, they pleaded with him to recount, to recant his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wouldn't do it. This is what he said. This is what mature faith will do for you in the face of even death, and a horrible death at that. This is what he says, four score and six years, 86 years have I served him. And he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? That's what mature believers. That's what they'll say at the end of their life. How? He's, he's done me no wrong. How can I now? May God grant us that kind of faith? Polycarp did die, not by flame. Tradition would tell us that the flames actually went the opposite direction. They lit the flames and it went away from them. And so they went up and killed them with a sword. Next, John addresses those who we would call the teenagers in the faith. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Though they're not as mature in the faith, John wants to encourage them and what they have already obtained in the faith. They have been victorious over the evil one. You know what? The fact that if you bow your knee to Jesus Christ, you confess your sins and ask for the forgiveness of God and for God to, come in to, God to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you have overcome the evil one. He says, you've overcome the evil one. He encourages them to continue on. Again, the perfect tense. David Allen again. Here is that perfect tense verb again. Young though you are, you have put Satan under your feet and have won the victory over him through Christ. Believers who persevere have put the evil one under their foot and continue to have him under their feet. That's what he's saying. John again writes to the children, but this time he uses a different word than in verse 12. Here he uses the word, what's children? padion." Little or young child. Perhaps you're thinking of Star Wars. Young Padawan. These would be the new believers, the ones who have been saved for a short period of time. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. John says they know the Father. He encourages them that though they are new in salvation, that they have really come to know the Father. And that knowing the Father is the only basis of which to build your life that leads to maturity in Christ. John then again goes on to address fathers and young men with the same reasoning as before. Fathers because they know Jesus who is from the beginning and young men because they have overcome the evil one. But he adds this to it, that they are strong and the word of God abides in them. Listen to what he says in verse 14. I write to you fathers because you you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The only way to become a father, the only way to have spiritual maturity and victory is through the word of God abiding in you. There is absolutely no other way for it to happen. Remember what Jesus said. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. John's encouragement to the fathers, the young men, and the children is the perfect segue into his admonition to not love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the world. Look at what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father Is not in him. The word love again, agapao, to like or love something on the basis of a high regard for its value or importance. Again, David Allen, I just think his commentary is fantastic if you haven't figured that out by now. Love is more than emotional feeling, love requires a commitment of time and resources. If you love the world system that John is talking about, that's where your time and resources will go. Actually, better translated, John would say to them, Stop loving the world. We need to remember that 1 John is actually a corrective letter, he's correcting the church. It is the object of love that is in focus here. That John uses the present imperative shows that this was an issue for the audience. They had a love for the things of the world. The question then is what does John mean by the world, the word world? But let's be very clear it's not wrong to enjoy the things of the world in respect to nature, people, recreation. It's not wrong. To go see a baseball game, everybody should go see the Mets. <laughs> it's not wrong to hunt or fish or or to like uh, uh, r- radio-controlled cars or you know what I'm saying. It's not, God gave us this world to enjoy the world. It's what we do with that that makes the difference. It's not saying the world in itself is all bad. I'm not telling us that we need to go lock ourselves up in some monastery and you know and just devote ourselves to silence and scripture. Paul writes to the church in Colossae says that, that that has no value in restraining the flesh. The word world is used three different ways in Scripture. It's the word cosmos, earth, the physical earth, the terra firma. It means the people, for God so loved the world, right? And it also means the systems of the world the systems of the world. And that is what John has in, re- in view here. Again, listen to what David Allen says. Sometimes the word world is used in reference uh, to refer to the organized evil system with its principles and its practices all under the authority of Satan, which include all teaching, ideas, culture, attitudes, activities, etc that are opposed to God. A fixation on the material over the spiritual, promotion of self, over others, pleasure over principle. These are just a few descriptors of the world system John is talking about. The word world here means everything that opposes Christ and His work on earth. Satan, in the Scripture, which is our sole and only infallible rule of law, as we learned in Sunday school, tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus said it in John 14.30 and 16.11. Paul says that he is the God of this world who has blind people's eyes. In 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the ruler of this world. He has been granted this authority by God. Why? That's up to God. Don't try to figure it out. God is the sovereign of the universe, yet Satan is in control of this world. And only God can make those two things happen at the same time. Remember what Satan said to Jesus? Shows him the kingdoms of the world. He says, for these are what? Mine to give. Jesus didn't correct him and go, no, you're not. I'm sovereign of it. He didn't correct them. He told the truth. Probably the first and only time he ever told the truth. How are we to view the world, though? What does James tell us in James 4.4? You adulterous people. Huh, that's a way to win friends and influence people. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship. It's cozying up a little bit. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The key word here, I believe, is the word makes. Carthystomy. To cause a state to be. To cause to be, to make to be, to make, to result in, to bring upon, to bring about. We get the idea that it causes a particular state. But here's the thing about the word, it's in the passive tense. It states what happens to us. When we love the things of the world and desire friendship with the world, God declares that there is now a state of enmity between us and God. And how often we are unaware that that state even exists. Because I really love God. Didn't John already warn us that we can deceive ourselves? When anyone loves the world or the things of the world, he says already, the love of God cannot be in them. But if we think we're walking in the light and we're not, we're, just, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. Look at what it says in John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We deceive ourselves if we think we can cozy up to the world and love God. John says that the love of God cannot share space with anything else. Look what it says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him we talk about love of the Father, it means our love for God, not God's love for us. Because God's love for us is never, ever in question. It's always our love towards God. That is always the question mark. Okay, Pastor, what does it mean to love the world? Get practical here. Well, I'm going to go with my man David Allen again. Listen to what he says. Pay attention to this. What are the telltale signs of loving the world? First, when the world or any object in it so engrosses our thoughts to such a degree that it excludes serious reflection on the things of God, we are guilty of loving the world. When the world is our constant associate, the last companion of our thoughts at night, and the first when we awaken in the morning, we are loving the world. Second, when the things of the world engross most or all of our conversation, we are loving the world. Third, if we are unwilling to part with it when need be or give it or to give it or anything in it up to God's purposes, we are loving the world. Fourth, fourth, Discontent with our portion of the world's goods proclaims a criminal love. I love that. Discontent with our portion of the world's good proclaims a criminal love for it. Boy, is that not society today? It's unfair. It's not equal. I got the short end of the stick. If we secretly grieve because we are not blessed with every earthly convenience or delight that others possess, we are loving the world. If we are not entirely willing that God should govern His own world and distribute His own gifts as He pleases and to whom He pleases, it proves that we pay homage to the world, which belongs only to God. Listen to that again. If we are not entirely willing that God should govern His own world, and distribute his own gifts as he pleases and to whom he pleases, it proves that we pay homage to the world which belongs to God only. God owns this world. Fifth, when we pursue it with greater zeal and enjoy it with higher relish than we do serving God and enjoying his favor, we are loving the world. Sixth. If we pride ourselves in earthly distinctions, if we expect great deference and resent the least contradiction or slight from others, we are loving the world. Seventh, when we seek to acquire or retain its objects in a wrong manner or by unwarrantable means, we are loving the world. Wow. That hit home. Some of those do, right? The purpose of the day is not to beat us up. That's for sure. But it is to call us to look intently at God's word. Say, how does God's word shine against me? How does it look against my soul? The love of the world and the love of God cannot coexist. God leaves no room for Interlopers. John says, don't love the things of the world, not because they remove our fellowship with God, not only because they remove our fellowship with God, that's bad enough, but because they are passing away. It's temporary. It's not going to last. But Christ and his word will last forever. The world and all that it is in it is going to be destroyed at the return of Christ Jesus. And Peter asked this great question concerning the world passing away. He says this in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Only one system Only one kingdom will be left standing. It won't be America. It won't be the Democrats. It won't be the Republicans. It won't be the conservatives. It won't be the European Union. It won't be China. It won't be you name it. They're not going to stand. But the kingdom of God will stand in the end. Because it is an eternal kingdom built by Jesus Christ himself. That's why John says, listen to what John says in verses 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with the desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life they are the very things, the very appetites that are in us to which Satan appeals. That's exactly what happened in the garden. Remember what it says in, about, in the garden. When Eve saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. And the world was plunged into darkness. But Jesus, who is the new Adam, when the light comes into the darkness, as Scripture tells us, he endured the very same temptations, but at a far greater degree than Adam ever did. But what did Jesus do? He was appealed to in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But Jesus stayed the course. He did not give in to these desires because he had a greater desire, that to obey the Father and bring many sons to glory. That was his purpose. And he did not deviate from his purpose. You know, we may not be buying wholesale into the systems of the world. And I hope we're not. I hope we're not even, you know, well... Let's just be honest. How often are we? We're cozying up to it, aren't we? Don't we cozy up maybe a little too much to the world? Well, too much? There's not a little too much. It's just too much, period. A little is too much. Again, not that we can't enjoy the world. We may not be Saying, well, I'm not in the world because I don't have my, 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 my heart set against God. I'm not those in Psalm 2 who take their stand against God and shake their fist at Him. I'm not there. That's, I'm not, I'm, what are you talking about? I'm not there. Well, do we buy into maybe what I would call the attitudes of the world? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Already he tells us where our passion should be towards, right? Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth or the world. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, which is a whole host of things. A whole host of things. It's not just a physical act. Impurity. Passion. Wrong passion, that is. Evil desire. And covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let's just take this little list in five here. Put the death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality and impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 6 should scare us. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let's Let's just take that big square in our living rooms. How often do we have on it sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness? And we just, doesn't affect us at all. Shows we like, shows we regularly watch—that's a consistent theme in it. More and more, it's becoming more and more ungodly. You know, should we never ever watch TV? Is that, that's not—you know what I'm saying? Just how comfortable we become allowing it into our house, allowing it into our phone, and it, let's just be honest—we're at the point in America now where a mass shooting—it's ah, another mass shooting—and just right. It's just, we are so desensitized as a culture. Just, it's horrific. And no wonder the church is accepting the world's culture, the world's system. Oh, yeah, God is love. That's right. God would like, God would allow, because God is love. What a distortion of the scriptures. God would? God loves that? No, God hates that. I don't know what Bible you're reading. My Bible says God hates that. Yes, God is love, but God hates he hates that. Paul goes on to tell the church in verse 7, And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now... Oh, wait, you know what? I thought I was... You know what? I'm not a section immoral. I'm not really... I don't have, you know, impurity or passion. I'm pretty good. You know what? I, I'm a good Pharisee. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees, right? They got it all on the outside. They're righteous. I didn't come to call them because they got it all together. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can have it all on the outside. All look good, but we got to go inward. We have to go inward. and This is where it hurts. This is where God would speak to us. But now you must put them all away. Anger. Oh, man. Wrath malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. How are we doing, church? How are you doing, Pastor Eric? Seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Scripture reminds us that if I'm in Christ, I have put these off. I've literally taken off the coat. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The whole idea here is that you can't root for two different teams. Was it in the Super Bowl, right? Brothers were against each other, right? If I remember correctly, right? And the mom had the shirt that was half Eagles, half Chiefs. That's great for moms to do. That's an, I would do the same thing for my kids. But it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. You can't have half Jesus and half world. You can't have 98% Jesus and 2% world. It doesn't work. I can't half wear a coat and one and half wear another. You have to put one on or not at all. That's what the Scriptures tells us. We have to ask ourselves, have we put off the things of the I want God's blessing put off the things of the world. And having put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Here is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Hey, what unites us is the forgiveness of Christ. We know the father. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's amazing that he calls us holy after saying, you have all these things on. Now take them off. Why? Because I've declared you holy, so therefore they can't occupy the same space. Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What did Jesus say about the meek? They shall see God. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. If I hate my brother, the love of God does not abide in me. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, thanks, Pastor. I'm going to go enjoy my Sunday dinner now. I was listening to David Allen on Sermon Audio, I looked him up, and um, when I heard his voice, I thought to myself, there's no way, this, there's no way this is the guy who's writing this commentary, right? You just, you, we have this, you know, picture of voices, and, and, and his voice may surprise you, but I listened to his sermon, an excellent exposition of Isaiah chapter six. Excellent, excellent exposition of Isaiah chapter six. And in that sermon, and he's a very passionate preacher, he made the statement that, you know, what did they do when they saw God? When Isaiah saw God, what will the church do when God comes? What will we say? Wow, that's great. Let's fire up the praise band. No. He says there is no wow without there first being a woe. As often, if you listen to Alistair Begg, you'll hear him pray. Show me my sin so that I may see my Savior. We need to hear the bad before the good can ever come. Because, yeah, there's a woe. There's a woe for us. God, hopefully, God did to me, and I hope to you, and I hope it's just not a momentary woe. And then I can get over it real quick. But God gave me a woe. I'm praying he gives you a woe. Because the wow is so greater than the woe. He says, my little children. Well, let me ask you this. What is God speaking to you right now? What should be your response? What should be my response? You say, I know that I'm not living the way I should. I know there's things in me. I know I'm cozing up to the world. What should be our response? Remember what John has already told us, what God's word tells us. That I have an advocate with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing and able to take our sins away and to restore us to a right relationship with God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is needed, loved ones, is genuine repentance and forgiveness. Lament. I don't know if you're paying attention to the news or what, but supposedly there's a revival going on in Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. Honestly, I'm skeptical, given the reputation of the seminary and the people there. Doesn't mean God can't use it. What I would love to see is a revival in me. My family would love to see a revival in me. You would love to see a revival in me. And I would love to receive a revival in you. If We don't see what's happening in this world. We're not going to stand. It's until people get on their knees before a holy and a just God, Say, I have sinned. And I'm not talking like Jimmy Swagger did. I have sinned. God says, yeah. And I have forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'd ask you, would you even now confess your sins asking God to forgive you? He will, for with him is abundant pardon. Scripture tells us to repent. So the times of refreshing may begin. Are you in a dry and a weary land? Are you just struggling and fighting and getting no traction? Well, where are your affections? Repent. The times of refreshing may begin. Loved ones, As I say to myself, and I would say to you, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, flee this day from the just punishment of God. Accept the forgiveness of your sins because they have been laid upon Jesus who has removed them from us into his sea of forgetfulness and replaced them with his own perfect righteousness. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the things of the world are passing away. But the kingdom of God abides forever. Father, forgive us of our sins. Father, forgive me for my arrogance, my anger, my laziness, being self-consumed so often. Lord, forgive us for so often we take you for granted because we know you're faithful. Lord, I pray that you produce in us a work that only your Holy Spirit can do. You revive us, draw us ever closer. Help us, Lord God, to say no to the desires of this world and of the evil one. Help us, Lord God, to stand firm with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the buckle of truth, the sword of the Spirit, and the feet ready with the good news of the gospel. And Lord, help us that after having done all that we can do to stand, that we would stand for the glory of Christ and for your kingdom. Grow it through us. Grow it through Bible Baptist Church. In your name we ask, amen. Let's stand and let's sing a song.
1: Though evil hands give rise to war, Remind us this is not our home. We look to you, we look to you, Sovereign King of all the earth. We look to you, we look to you, In your strength we will endure. Deliver us from evil love, our hearts so quickly run astray. Temptations crouching at the door to turn us from the To you, we look to you. Rise the coffering Son of God. We look to you, we look to you. Lord, complete what you've begun. Lord, complete what you be begun. From evil Lord, the devil seeking to devour. With trembling hearts we hear his roar, but your strong arm will crush his power. We look to you, we look to you, coming in his earth. To you, Lord deliver us, we pray, we look to you, we look to you, you will come again to rain. We look to you, we look to you, all the earth will bow in pray. Amen. Praise his holy name. God bless you all.